You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, and none came in. And Yahweh said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every one straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of Yahweh. And he said to the people, Go forward. March around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of Yahweh. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before Yahweh, went forward, blowing the trumpets, with the ark of the covenant of Yahweh following them. The armed men were walking before the priests, who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of Yahweh to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of Yahweh. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of Yahweh, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of Yahweh, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once, and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early, at the dawn of day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for Yahweh has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to Yahweh for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to Yahweh. They shall go into the treasury of Yahweh. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, 
both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of Yahweh. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before Yahweh be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So Yahweh was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. mullet show i'm glad you're here here's another podcast for you another podcast where we are reading through god's word we're reading through the old testament one chapter at a time and talking about current events we don't have to pick one or the other we can do both and we can talk about how life is right now what we observe what's going on what we're encountering what we're trying to make sense of what we're trying to think rightly about and also, we can talk about the character of God as shown, as communicated to us in his word. So we're going to. And actually, my position is we can best know what sense to make of what is happening today, what is happening right now in our lives. We can think most rightly if we meditate on how God has engaged and blessed his people, provided for his people, protected his people, accomplished his purposes, fulfilled his promises, how he has engaged. We can best understand current events and our own lives and why we're here and what we should be about and where are we going and what should we be doing if we start with God's word. So that said, let's talk about Joshua chapter 6 and the fall of Jericho. The fall of the walls of Jericho, and then the devoting the city to destruction, and only Rahab and her household being spared. Let's talk about that, shall we? It's a hard thing. It's a hard passage for people today who have 
the sensibility, the mindset that we come to the text and we judge, and that includes but is not limited to God himself. We judge, we sit in judgment, we scrutinize, we examine whether God was in the right, and then if we decide that he was in the right, then we put our trust in him. Or if not, we reject all of it. Or perhaps we say, that's a hard passage. Let's not get into it. Let's not think about that. But what about in the book of Revelation? What about the second coming of Christ? What about when Christ returns to rule and reign and to judge? What about the day of judgment? What about those who are not God's people in the end times? What about those whose names are not written in the book of the Lamb? What about God telling Israel to devote everyone in the city except for Rahab and her household to destruction? I'll admit it is a difficult thing to square or embrace. It's a difficult picture to reconcile if we have grown up with a kinder, gentler view of God that doesn't spend a lot of time in the Old Testament, only occupies itself with the New Testament, particularly the Gospels or maybe the Pauline epistles. Very pragmatic, very practical, very utilitarian, also very interested in the Gospel, but the Gospel being defined in a doctrinally minimal way is part of why you have not necessarily grown up hearing quite so much about Jericho, the walls of Jericho falling down. Maybe there was a children's Sunday school song about it, but you probably didn't get into it a whole lot in a Bible study or in a devotional. You probably didn't get into it quite a lot in the common discourse, the casual conversation with your fellow saints, if you've been a Christian for some years, you probably haven't gone there quite a lot. But here we have this command to march around the city. Trumpets are to be blown. Everyone's to keep silent until the order is given. And then they shout. And after they shout, the walls of the city will fall down and then they will go in and they will put to the sword everyone. And they'll devote to fiery destruction, everything except for the silver and the gold and vessels of bronze and iron. Those, verse 19 says, are holy to Yahweh. They go into the treasury of Yahweh. But everyone else, everything else is to be destroyed except for Rahab and her household, except for the silver, the gold, the bronze, the iron. Those belong to God. Rahab has found favor. And just think to yourself, If you are Joshua here and you're yelling, you're announcing, you're putting the word out, she's not to be harmed, her household is not to be harmed, do the people inside of Jericho hear that? They don't have a lot of time to do anything about it, but do they hear that before the end comes? Do they know at the last that Rahab did help these two young men who were sent in to spy out Jericho especially? Do they know at the last that the reason why Rahab and her household, her family, her father, mother, brothers, everyone who belongs to her are being spared and they are going to be destroyed. Do they know that at the last? We don't know. We don't know whether they know. 
But we do know she and her household are spared. And it says that she has lived in Israel to this day. What day is that? Verse 25, the day in which the book of Joshua is being written. So this book of Joshua is being written during Rahab's lifetime. She's still around. You could go talk to her. You could go ask her about how it's going. Ask her to tell the story from the vantage point of what was going on inside of the city of Jericho as Israel was marching around the city, blowing trumpets, otherwise keeping silent until the command was given to shout. But there's a curious curse at the end. It says in verse 26, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, cursed before Yahweh be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city, Jericho. What's it going to cost him? Well, it's going to cost him his firstborn to lay the foundation. It's going to cost him his youngest son to set up its gates again. So there's something about Jericho that is not supposed to be reignited, rekindled, restored. There is something about the destruction here, which is supposed to be final, permanent, forever. And anyone who tries to undo that destruction, it's going to cost them dearly. It's going to not go well for them. Who's going to fulfill this curse? If this curse is effective, and we can presume that it will be effective, who's going to fulfill the curse? God is going to fulfill the curse. But it makes me think of all of these efforts right now to bring back paganism, to make paganism mainstream, and to make Christianity marginal. Effectively, it's the same thing as rebuilding a wall and a city that God had devoted to destruction because of its wickedness. Let's rebuild it and let's pick back up where they left off in Jericho. Ooh, yeah. God's strength has not waned. His reach has not shortened. Take care. You've been warned. But this is, again, one of those passages, a kind of passage, a kind of subject that I think we don't get into very often, in part because doctrinal minimalism has been preferred. The gospel, narrowly defined, has been preferred. Ecumenicism has been preferred. World peace was the big project for the intelligentsia, for the intellectuals, for the academics, for the ruling elites over the last century. After World War I and World War II, world peace took priority over sound doctrine. And actually, if you go back farther, it was the Civil War and the preceding debates about slavery that in an American context started so much of this distancing ourselves from the Old Testament. You had the abolitionists saying, liberty is the highest priority. We want people, men, women, children to be free from slavery. And you had others who were saying, well, wait a second, we have slavery in the Bible. How can you declare categorically a sin, the institution of slavery, when God doesn't declare it a sin and actually he regulates rather than prohibiting it? Some abolitionists said, all right, you know what? You bring up verses where slavery is permitted by God. If that's what God is okay with, if God is okay with slavery, then I'm out. I'm done with Christianity. And then you had others who, it would seem, out of a misguided attempt to make peace after the Civil War during the Reconstruction period, 
they decided to just leave those topics alone or those passages alone and to give their opinions because that would be less inflammatory. That would be less upsetting. That would be less divisive. But wait a second, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And so when you distance your preaching, your teaching, your Christian faith from talking about those passages or explaining what they mean when you're trying to go through the Bible in an expository sort of a way, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, when you avoid those passages, you are depriving yourself and the church and the world of the goodness that would come from having the mind of Christ. And if you're not careful, you actually go a step farther and anybody who's not willing to keep quiet with you as well, anyone you order to keep silent, you're going to accuse of being divisive and contentious. If they say, well, wait a second, no, this is what the Bible says. This is what God's word says. You say, you're causing trouble. You're stirring up divisions. You're being contentious. Out of here. You're done. You're done. We told you to be quiet. You won't agree to being quiet. You're out. And those who say in positions of institutional authority, you should just keep silent about anything about which there might be some controversy or disagreement or people might get upset. They might point to Joshua here telling everyone to be silent as they march. Verse 10, Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of Yahweh to circle the city going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Verse 11. But notice the purpose of telling everyone to keep silent. The purpose was not, at least by any indication in the text, that what they would have been talking about was a bad thing or that they should never, ever speak again. This wasn't a permanent order to keep quiet. This was temporary for the purposes of obeying God. This was part of God's promise being fulfilled to drive out the nations which were offering their children as sacrifices to demons. This was part of the fulfillment of the promise of God to give Canaan to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there would be, in short order, a conclusion to everyone keep silent. And oh, by the way, too, it wasn't a selective order. It wasn't to certain people. Now you keep silent. Don't have anything more to say. That's enough out of you. It wasn't people that Joshua didn't like. It wasn't people that Joshua was having a disagreement with. That wasn't the reason. This wasn't selfish ambition and vain conceit on the part of Joshua. This was symbolic of the discipline of Israel and the obedience of Israel to godly authority. Why do I bring this up? I bring this up because in so many of our churches in America, we are only retreating. We are not advancing. We are not demolishing strongholds. We're not taking thoughts captive. We're just adding to the list of issues and topics that we won't talk about if somebody would get upset. Is that honoring to God? Is that healthy? Is that mature? Is that coming from a place of wanting to honor the principles contained in Joshua chapter 6? Or 
is it a variation on conforming to the pattern of this world? The larger context that we inhabit in America is not okay with free speech, and perhaps we're conforming to the pattern of this world in our churches as well, in too many cases where we just say, we're not going to talk about these issues because people get upset about them. But wait a second, if God's word is clear on these issues, what room have we left for being Bereans, being of a more noble character? How are we supposed to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded, if we're going to fall silent and order silence every time we come to commands about which there may be questions or disagreement, a difference of interpretation, the simple truth is we can't, right? We can't fulfill the Great Commission if we don't speak. The teaching piece requires speaking, speaking the words of God after him. The confession and repentance piece requires speaking, particularly if some of the ways in which you've sinned involved what you said that was not true, what you didn't say that was true. Repentance will see you going from speaking falsehoods to only saying what is true and correcting the record where you lied, where you bore false witness. Repentance will see you telling the truth where you were keeping silent when you knew better. Confession will see you agreeing When you speak, you will be agreeing with God. You will be of one mind, not a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways, but you'll be agreeing with God, not, oh, on these things, yeah, I like those verses and I claim them, but I claim them out of context. And then all these other verses, we just don't go there. You think about the reality of actually literally demolishing a stronghold or a fortified city and everyone inside except for the household of a woman who helped God's people in an hour of need, everyone else being devoted to destruction. Now think about what that foreshadows, what that portends for the end times. I don't mean to suggest that you be harsh, rude, unpleasant. In God's good timing, though, those who are not in Christ will give an account. And Jesus says, Even many who say, Lord, Lord, will be told, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. They'll tout all of the things that they did, supposedly in his name, and he'll say, I never knew you. And what's that about? Well, it wasn't genuine. It wasn't real. They weren't really doing those things for God. They weren't really doing those things for Jesus. They said they were, but they weren't. They were operating from selfish ambition and vain conceit. But then... Besides those who claim, Lord, Lord, but will hear, depart from me, I never knew you, there will be many who can make no such claim, and they're cast out into outer darkness. They didn't believe, they didn't obey. Like the people of Jericho, they will be devoted to destruction. But again, the big idea here is not to be unkind, particularly while there is time for repentance and righteousness coming from a place of faith. By God's grace, Rahab is a prostitute, and that's stated repeatedly. Lest you might forget, you're reminded again and again, she's a prostitute, and she is saved, and so is her family. Her family is saved by association with her and her 
act of faith, protecting these two spies. Right up until the shout from God's people, she is in the minority as far as the citizens of the city of Jericho. Her family, her household is in the minority. After judgment, after the walls of the city fall down, after the city is devoted to the sword and to fire, destruction, after that, she is no longer in the minority as far as Jericho is concerned. But she's taken out of Jericho and she's invited in, she's welcomed into the household of Israel to live with them, to dwell with them, to become one of them. And actually, as we find out later on, to be grafted into the genealogy of David and of Jesus. But that is to say too, that in our context, it would be exceedingly unwise to miss some important lessons here from the fall of Jericho. One important lesson is, even if it seems as though you are a minority of one amidst a whole lot of people who don't fear God, they don't trust God, they don't love God, they don't obey God, that doesn't mean you're wrong. That doesn't mean you're the idiot. And also, oh, by the way, if your past is not so squeaky clean, it's not anything to brag about. In fact, it's deeply shameful and you are ashamed of it. That doesn't mean there's no place for you among God's people. What you need to do is confess, repent, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you will do that, you will be saved. And actually, maybe in some ways, you're in a better place coming from humility, not self-righteousness, utter and total reliance on the mercies of God. Perhaps you're in a better place than others who would say, I've been a good person my whole life. I deserve this. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And that's another lesson we would do well to learn from and learn well from Joshua chapter 6. Let's check in on how things are going in the present, though. Mr. Retrops over at Not the Bee has a piece up from just yesterday. Here are the best memes mocking Oakland for advising residents to use air horns to defend themselves from criminals. The feature image here is pretty funny. It's an AR-15 graphic with the caption, possible modifications, air horn. And in place of a foregrip, we have an air horn as though you would attach an air horn to an AR-15 in the place of the foregrip. Here's the story. CNN reports, air horns and moving trucks, how Oakland, California residents are facing a surge in crime. Crime is escalating in Oakland, California, Mr. Retrops writes, so police have advised residents to add security bars to their doors and windows, add security cameras, and get air horns. Not a gun, an air horn. There are a lot of funny memes here. Check them out as it pleases you. But it's almost as though someone took the wrong lessons from Joshua chapter 6 and the fall of Jericho. What was special about the trumpets being blown in Joshua chapter 6. It wasn't that the trumpets were in and of themselves so fantastic. It wasn't that the ones playing the trumpets were so skilled. The trumpets were important because this was to announce, to herald 
God, that God was going to fight for Israel against Jericho. The trumpets were like Reveille, announcing a cavalry charge. That's what the trumpets were like. And remember, in the previous chapter, Joshua chapter 5, you have the commander of the armies of Yahweh approached by Joshua with the question, are you for us or against us? The simple, epic answer is no. (laughs) Are you for us or for our enemies? No, I'm for God. Now I have come. But in Oakland, California, crime is such a problem, you have people having to put metal bars over their doors and windows, and they're being encouraged by law enforcement to get air horns. Really? Okay, so a violent criminal, if they get at you anyways and you have an air horn, they're going to have damaged hearing right before they pummel you and take your stuff or have their way with you. Got it. Interesting as well, about Joshua chapter 6, the trumpets weren't all that Israel had. The trumpets were an initial instrument, but then later came the more traditional weapons. When the walls were knocked down, the armies of Israel were putting the people of Jericho to the sword with conventional weapons, not just getting up close and blowing the horns and the trumpets at them until they perished. No, blades and fire followed after the trumpets. In Oakland, California, however, there is so much unreasonableness about innocent people protecting themselves, their property, their loved ones. There's so much unreasonableness that all law enforcement will tell people is to use less than lethal means. Just try to keep people from getting into the house in the first place by putting up metal bars. Try that. See if that works. Well, wait a second, though. What if they, ha- what if they set your house on fire? What if they knock your walls down? What then? Well, I suppose that's when the air horn comes in. Or maybe you just leave that city, Oakland, California. Maybe if you can't get better government that's more responsive to bearing the sword for something, rewarding those who do what is good, protecting those who are exercising their rights, that is to say they're doing the right things according to God. If you can't get a more responsive government when it comes to punishing those who do what is evil or maintaining your right to punish those who would do evil to you and your loved ones, your household, maybe you need to go somewhere else. But then that's alluded to in the CNN piece. Moving trucks, air horns and moving trucks are how the people of Oakland are resigned to deal with this. If they're not won over by just imprisoning themselves in their houses to wait out the onslaught of criminals and criminal behavior, if they're not content with that, They're just fleeing the city. This is evidence of those in authority having lost the plot on why they have the authority in the first place. They have that authority to protect, to serve, to reward those who do what is good, to punish those who do what is evil. The people who are moving away have lost all confidence in the authorities here to protect them, to serve them, to reward them for doing what is good. And so they're voting with their feet. And apparently they don't believe that they can vote effectively any other way 
And so unless there is a course correction in Oakland, California, this is the beginning of the end for Oakland, California. Without an appropriate biblical view of when violence is just and justified and necessary, this is what you get. You get the evil men running amok, preying on the innocent and the helpless, preying on men, women, and children. But then before that, you have to have an appropriate conception of the role of men in the home. I guarantee you this is being driven largely by fatherless young men who grew up in the matriarchy. They grew up with only their mother telling them what to do, only their mother giving them instruction or correction. And the young men have turned into full-grown men who have no respect for authority. They have no respect for other people. They have no respect for laws or law enforcement. They do what they please because there are no men in their lives. There have been no men in their lives because why? Because the men who should have been raising them, their fathers, impregnated their mothers, and then that was about the extent of their contribution. What contributed to that? I would say a couple of things. First and foremost, feminism, egalitarianism, the legalization of birth control and abortion, also the welfare state, also the progressive model of compulsory government schooling, all alike rejecting ultimately God's authority, but then also rejecting and making war against the authority of husbands and fathers in their homes, disincentivizing young women getting married, submitting to their own husbands, and at the same time, incentivizing, rewarding those who do what is evil. Getting pregnant out of wedlock is evil. Raising children without a father in the home is evil, and it produces still more evil. And when you get generations, successive generations of that, it culminates in wrath and criminality and lawlessness and destruction, suffering. Little boys who grow up without a father in the home eventually become young men who run amok. And if they are the ones voting, if they're the ones voting for who is going to enforce the laws in their community, are they going to vote for a strong and just and honorable civil authority to enforce the laws? Or are they going to vote for those who will be permissive, those who will give them free reign and a blank check, so to speak, those who will stay out of their way and let them do whatever they want? Well, we know the answer. We don't have to speculate. We know the answer to this question. But it actually goes back to whether there is a fear of God, whether men aspire to being husbands first and then fathers subsequently. And fathers who fear the Lord will love their wives as Christ loved the church. Fathers who fear the Lord will instruct their sons after them, will bring them up, train them up in the fear and instruction of the Lord as well. And then they will behave themselves in broader society. But when you don't have that, what you get is this, local law enforcement, encouraging people to bar the windows and doors that only is good for so long until the criminals start cutting through the bars or knocking holes in your walls or just setting your house on fire with you inside of it. Those bars aren't doing you a whole lot of good if the criminals surround your house and threaten to burn it down with you inside of it 
you don't let them in or give them what they want. Only the fear of the Lord can correct this. Unfortunately, the fear of the Lord is about the farthest thing from many of our minds, and consequently, we're afraid of everything else. For instance, I'll refer you to, if you have a subscription to The Daily Wire, a opinion piece by Matt Walsh titled, Climate Alarmists Panic Over Heat Wave. Turns out it was a volcano or it was caused by a volcano. I'm not going to read for you subscriber-only content from The Daily Wire. I'm just not going to do that. If you don't have a subscription to The Daily Wire, consider getting one. But what I will do is, insofar as there are some embedded video links here in the opinion piece by Matt Walsh, I will play some audio for you from a couple of those. One from ABC News, another from NBC News, and last we have from Global News, what may help us to complete the picture here. But let's start from the top. Cut one. I'll play for you some audio from ABC News talking about July potentially being the hottest month on record on Earth, July 2023. Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. And heat isn't just affecting the U.S. Scientists say July is set to be the Earth's hottest month in recorded history. Let's bring in Chief Meteorologist Ginger Z and host of the 538 Politics podcast, Galen Druk, for more on the heat and how it's impacting voters. Thank you both for being here. Mm -hmm. Ginger, it's been a busy July for you. You yes. and your team have been reporting on this all throughout the month. What sticks out to you after looking at the heat that's affected across the country, but also around the world? Right. And that's what you have to remember. This is global warming. It is global heat. And so there are people in the Midwest or Northeast and we're like, well, most of the summer has been okay. Like it really hasn't been anything above average. Yes, we've had the desert Southwest having incredible heat. We're talking consecutive heat, but Europe, Asia, so many pockets that add up globally to the hottest July on record. That's a big deal because we can go much farther than just the last century or so into paleoclimatology to tell us we haven't been this hot. And here's the other thing. When you look at the 1.5 degrees Celsius line, that line, that threshold we're so desperately trying to stay away from, for two weeks this month, we touched it. So we are rapidly rising to that level. And as the globe keeps warming, average temperature, we are going to keep seeing more and more of that. And I do want to note that El Paso, Texas, for example, at 44 days was their end number for a consecutive 100 plus degrees. That broke the old record by three weeks. Remember, I was telling you, we get, you know, kind of surprised and shocked when we break a record by a day or two when it's a consecutive record, not by three weeks, just surreal. Oh man, that's horrible, right? That's horrible, horrible news. 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold, we're touching it. And what could possibly explain this? It must be carbon emissions from fossil fuel, electricity generation, internal combustion engine vehicles. It must be that, right? It must be that we're burning fossil fuels, right? Well, wait a second. Not so fast. As Matt Walsh points out, I will quote him briefly here, just a year and a half ago, this happened in the Pacific Ocean. So here it is, cut two from NBC News from the Matt Walsh opinion piece at The Daily Wire. Tonight, jaw-dropping images of an extraordinarily powerful and now deadly volcano erupting in the Pacific Ocean. 
This video, captured a day before an even larger eruption of the same underwater volcano, rocks the island nation of Tonga, triggering tsunami alerts across the globe. The scope of that eruption best seen from space. Satellite images showing a massive cloud of smoke spewing in all directions and as high as 12 miles in the air, the most powerful volcanic activity in at least three decades. The tsunami advisory in effect. Its stunning power felt across five continents, the entire west coast of the United States and Alaska under a tsunami alert for most of the weekend. In Peru, two people drowning after abnormally high waves slammed ashore. Ports from Japan to New Zealand littered with sunken fishing boats, the powerful waves tossing them like toys. And they pop their heads out of the out of their boat to see a red catamaran going over the top of my boat. So that is a force of nature there. Shockwaves in Central Europe more than 10,000 miles away. The before and after images are staggering. The force of the blast nearly wiping this uninhabited island off the map. Okay, all right, all right, all right. <clears throat> cut, cut, cut. So let's recap briefly. There was a major, major volcanic eruption which caused the whole world to be impacted. Reported on just a year and a half ago by NBC News, now this summer we're seeing a slight increase in global temperatures as ABC News is reporting. And if you can see where I'm going with this, where Matt Walsh went with this, maybe these two things could possibly just perhaps be related. Could that be? Could that be? Well, I'll play for you cut three, which delves into this very question. It was only a matter of time for Hunga Tonga, and when the volcano blew, it blew big. An explosive plume that reached more than 50 kilometers above the earth. Much of the eruption was beneath the ocean surface, sending more than 40 million tons of water vapor high into the atmosphere. The seawater magma interaction shot everything up at very high velocity into the atmosphere and was one of the largest eruptions we've ever recorded with modern instrumentation. It was the biggest volcanic eruption since Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines more than 30 years ago. But Pinatubo was very different, ejecting ash that scientists believed would have a cooling effect on the earth. Those droplets will then form a haze blocking out some of the sun's rays. Indeed, when Pinatubo erupted in 1991, it spewed sulfur dioxide gas that spread over much of the planet. The particles deflected some of the sun's light and heat, cooling the earth by half a degree over the next year. Now in 2022, Hunga Tonga mostly blasted water vapor high into the stratosphere. Like other greenhouse gases, it trapped some of the heat in our atmosphere, causing a slight warming, an estimated few hundredths of a degree. Hunga Tonga may have increased the Earth's surface temperature this year only slightly, but however small, the lead researcher says every decimal point counts as the planet warms. Those two or three hundredths of a degree that Tonga added um, temporarily do matter, and they do take us that fraction closer to one and a half degrees, and, and that's important because of, because of the importance of that temperature threshold. Okay, got it, got it, got it. The temperature threshold is important because it's important this temperature threshold. See? Hmm. Yes. Yes. Quite right. Quite right. Good man. Uh, <laughs> a major volcanic eruption in the Pacific Ocean contributes to global warming. Also, solar activity contributes to global warming. 
the trouble if you lead with that, if you say, hey, listen, you know, there are some things that are happening geologically that don't pertain to man burning fossil fuels for electricity or transportation. If you lead with those other things which are not controlled by us, are not affected by us, we don't make a decision to either have Tonga erupt or not. What's lost? The pretext for overhauling the economy of the United States of America, the pretext for overhauling the global economy and the political landscape and culture and the social imaginary worldwide. That's what is lost. That's why they don't lead with that. That's why they want you to think first and foremost about how it's good, actually, that your electricity bill is going up. It's good, actually, that you're possibly going to be forced to ride a bicycle to and from work or endure rolling blackouts and brownouts in the hottest summer months. It's good, actually, that we're going to require you to pay 10 cents per plastic bag at the grocery store. It's good, actually, that we are inflating currency and redistributing your wealth around the world. It's good, actually. But see, just as Matt Walsh is getting at in his piece, which you should read, just as I am getting at here, you also need to understand God is the one who ultimately rules and reigns over the earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That includes volcanoes, but is not limited to them. That includes whether water molecules are going to be propelled up into the upper atmosphere and warm the planet by a little bit. That includes whether certain currents and certain weather patterns are going to shift and alter and change, impacting your region or my region. That includes all of those things. And actually, that includes fossil fuels, oil, natural gas, coal, having been deposited in the world, all over the world, in the first place. If the presumption when we come to these natural resources is that they are off limits, no touchy-touchy, hands off, not for you, because the soup Nazis, so to speak, want to expand their own influence. They want to play God like George Soros. Well then, we have a major conflict, not principally between us and those people pushing the narrative of climate change or global warming or global boiling. No, no. First and foremost, we have a major conflict between two competing views of man's role on the earth. One is informed by the word of God, in particular, the dominion mandate. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. On the other hand, you have neo-paganism. You have the equivalent of rebuilding Jericho after God knocked it down and committed it to destruction, fiery destruction. A revival of worship of the gods of the nations, the demons. On the one hand, we can say it is a good thing God made in the beginning. Male and female, he created us from the beginning and he blessed us and he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. We can say, yes, we agree with God. That is quite correct. That is right. That is good. We affirm that. Or we can side with the neo-pagans who ultimately hate humanity, even as they seek to transcend humanity and self-actualize themselves as gods. 
switching gears a little bit, but not by all that much. Consider with me Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 through 10. The word of Yahweh came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains, and on every high hill my sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. Verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture, and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet. And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am Yahweh. I have spoken. 
Now let's stop for a moment, pause and consider on verse 24 in Ezekiel chapter 34. We have here God calling out the shepherds of Israel because they have abused their position of prominence. They have abused the people they were supposed to be serving. That is to say, they have not served Yahweh, whose command it was for them to serve these people. They have not served Yahweh. They have not served the sheep. They have served themselves. And they also are sheep, but they're the fat sheep, the well-fed. And because they're malicious, they're not content only to make themselves fat. They harm and hurt the weak sheep. And they trample on all of the food that would be for those other sheep. And they muddy the waters. They will drink the clean water, and then they'll muddy what's left for everyone else. There's a lot of food for thought in this chapter for the American church. We should listen. We should consider that God's character has not changed. The character of his promises and purposes has not changed. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If the shepherds of America are likewise guilty of having made themselves fat, serving themselves, not serving Yahweh, not serving the Lord Jesus Christ, not serving the sheep. So also we can expect God will himself shepherd his sheep and God himself will feed his sheep and God himself will serve justice to those who pretended to be his servants. What I think here of is the apathy, the ambivalence, the indifference to husbands and fathers in American churches Husbands and fathers who love Jesus and their ability to provide for themselves and their families, the churches take little to no interest in, give no concern for, and yet what? Those sheep, those men, those husbands, those fathers, those heads of household are pushed around by the fat sheep, pushed around by the horns. The food that they would eat is trampled on, and then they're told, eat it anyways. The waters that they would drink from are muddied by the shepherds, and they're told, drink it anyways, because that's just another way to oppress them. It's just another way to lord it over them. And God is not ignorant of this. It is not lost on him. He's not indifferent to it. This is not how it's supposed to be. This is not what he commanded. This is not what he called us to. He will see that justice is done. And that goes for those who have abused the trust that was placed in them, the authority that was invested in them. That also goes for those who have been pushed around, who've been trampled on. God himself will see his sheep are sought. His sheep are shepherded by him. Consider the 25th verse and on to the end of the chapter. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield its increase and they shall be secure in their land and they shall know that I am Yahweh when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslaved them. 
They shall be no more a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations, so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am Yahweh, their God, with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. If you are discouraged, if you are forlorn, if you are sad and weary, take heart, for he has overcome the world. And he will, in due season, show you. But don't grow weary in doing what is good. For our next story, though, consider a bit of reporting from Alan Zhang over at the Epoch Times, published August 5th, updated August 8th. Megadonor threatens to cut off funding if DeSantis doesn't go moderate. Ron DeSantis's biggest individual donor, hotel entrepreneur Robert Bigelow, warned that he will cut off donations if the Republican 2024 candidate doesn't turn moderate. Quote, he does need to shift to get to moderates. He'll lose if he doesn't. Extremism isn't going to get you elected. End quote. Mr. Bigelow said during an interview with Reuters, adding that he had communicated these concerns to Mr. DeSantis's campaign. Mr. Bigelow, founder of Las Vegas-based Bigelow Aerospace, donated $20 million to the pro-DeSantis Never Back Down Super PAC in March, which makes him the biggest donor to the group. The second biggest individual donor to Never Back Down is venture capitalist Douglas Leone, who gave $2 million, according to campaign filings, a tenth of what Mr. Bigelow contributed. When asked about which policies he doesn't agree with, Mr. Bigelow specifically mentioned the six-week abortion ban Mr. DeSantis signed in April after the Florida legislature passed the bill. The bill was signed after Mr. Bigelow made the massive donation. However, Mr. Bigelow said he still supports Mr. DeSantis and agreed with most of his policies. He said he would not donate more money for now. Quote, not until I see that he's able to generate more of his own. I'm already too big a percentage. A lot of his donors are still on the fence, end quote. Now, let's think about this for a moment. And let's think about partiality. And let's think about what money can buy when we show partiality to donors. And let's also consider how this relates to Ezekiel chapter 34. A shepherd feeds the sheep. A shepherd protects the sheep. There's a provisional part to the role, and there is a protective part to the role. And shepherds should not be bought and sold. Which of the sheep they protect should not be something you put a price tag on. And no amount of millions of dollars should be leveraged to get a hands-off approach when it comes to the unborn, leaving them at the mercy of those who have no mercy at all for the innocent. This is shameful. This is a shameful thing, but it's done in the open. This is said in public without any shame, without any self-awareness that this is improper because this is how it's done. This is what it is. The donor class gives the money and they expect to be able to call the tune. He who pays the piper calls the tune. That's the assumption. And that's just the way that it is. But that's partiality. That is, after a fashion, bribery. That's corruption. Essentially, what you have is the labeling of 
policies and laws designed to protect the unborn, the most innocent among us, called extremism, which is a smear. That is slanderous. But then there's more to it than that. This wouldn't be so brazen if it weren't so common. It being common is not exclusive to the civil authorities, politicians who run for public office. This is not consigned to civil authorities. This is also, unfortunately, true in the other two spheres of authority. On the one hand, you have husbands and fathers, in too many cases, willing to sell their souls for the right dollar figure, for the right amount of money. They'll sell their souls and show partiality and keep silent and keep quiet and back off on doing the right thing or saying the true thing if their livelihood is threatened or if they're offered more money to sing a different tune, to do something that goes against what God has commanded them. That's not okay. That's a wicked thing. On the other hand, in the church, it is a wicked thing. If some give large amounts of money, they donate large amounts of money to pay for the upkeep of the building, to keep various people on staff, especially the ones who do the talking, the ones who do the preaching and the teaching. And the counseling, when large amounts of money buy changes in what will be preached or taught or counseled, we are in no position to tell civil authorities that they are being corrupt until we get the church straightened out in that regard, until we get our households, our homes straightened out in that regard. We have nothing to stand on. We don't have a leg to stand on to criticize it in the civil sphere. But that isn't to say we should say nothing about it. That isn't to say that we can afford to wait until we've got those other two spheres cleaned up and then call for repentance in this sphere. All of the above, all at the same time, confess that this is a sin and turn away from it and call others to repent and to confess and turn away from this. Or else I refer you back to Ezekiel chapter 34. One more story for this episode. This, some reporting by Tim Pierce over at the Daily Wire, August 7th. Marxist lesbian president of American Library Association doubles down on agenda for a better world. Emily Drabinsky, a self-proclaimed Marxist lesbian, took over as president of the ALA in July. The ALA is the largest nonprofit trade organization for libraries, recent wielding its influence against efforts to ban sexually explicit content from school libraries and to recommend dozens of LGBT books for minors. The backlash against Drabinsky began over a post she made to social media before taking her spot at the head of the ALA. Quote, I just cannot believe that a Marxist lesbian who believes that collective power is possible to build and can be wielded for a better world is the president-elect of ALA library, Drabinsky wrote in a April 2022 post, quote, I am so excited for what we will do together. Solidarity. And my mom is so proud. I love you, mom. End quote. Despite the backlash, she doubled down in an interview with NBC News published on Monday. Quote, I was excited to highlight and celebrate two aspects of my identity that are really important to me and are often under a lot of scrutiny. End quote. Quote, I didn't anticipate these kinds of targeted attacks being used as a bludgeon against library workers across the country. I really think that is regrettable. 
and I wish that wasn't happening right now, end quote. Oh, by the way, my home state, Montana, its library commission became the first in the country to leave the ALA over Drabinsky's comments in July. Montana State Library Commissioner Tamara Hall praised the decision, calling it a statement about what's right for Montana. Quote, we're pulling out based on the fact that our oath of office for Montana and for the federal government is in direct violation of Drabinsky's Marxist opinion, end quote. In addition to Montana, lawmakers in other states, including Arizona, Idaho, Illinois, Georgia, Louisiana, South Carolina, and Wyoming have led calls to separate off from the ALA over concerns about Drabinsky's Marxism and the political agenda of the ALA. Now, I bring this up, I bring this up because of the passage I'm going to talk with you about next. Titus chapter 3, verse 10 Paul writes, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Why do I put these two in juxtaposition? Why do I present these two things for your consideration in connection to one another? Quite simply, if your assumption is unity, 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 without condition, based on whoever the first is to state their case who seems correct, you will too easily fall into a trap of throwing out the second who comes to examine the first to state his case, saying that person is stirring up division. But wait a second, are they stirring up division or are they cross-examining? And if they're cross-examining and you throw them out, what if you only seemed correct, but you're not correct? What if you're actually trampling the pastures that the sheep are supposed to feed on? What if you're muddying the waters that the sheep are supposed to be drinking from? What if someone comes to cross-examine the first to state their case and you could still have unity in your principles, in the spirit of what life is supposed to be about? Who is Christ to you? Who are you to Christ? You could have unity on that basis and work through what you're disagreeing about. But then here we have a Marxist lesbian wanting to hijack libraries in America funded and built by yours and my tax dollars, a Marxist lesbian who wants to use our library system to promote Marxism and to promote sexual degeneracy. And what would you say to some library or some state library commission separating itself from the ALA? Would you say, oh, but you're being divisive. Don't do that. You might damage your testimony. Don't do that. God forbid. Just like with Deuce Bigelow, I'm sorry, not Deuce Bigelow. What's his first name? Robert. Just like Robert Bigelow threatening to pull funding from Ron DeSantis's campaign unless he stops being an extremist, you can have leaders in the church claiming that anybody who would challenge the siren song of conforming to the pattern of this world instead of being transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus, anyone who would challenge that and implore, no, no, let's obey God, let's trust God, let's serve God, let's believe him in his word, they could be cast out very easily if we have a too simplistic, naive, unwise view of these things. We will say, ah, it's extremism to actually oppose what is evil. It's extremism to actually contradict what is false. But in that case, are we servants of Christ anymore? 
Who is the one who stirs up division in Titus chapter 3, verse 10? That's what we need to understand. That's what we need to know. Is it whoever upsets you, whoever causes you to lose a little bit of sleep or to feel frustrated? Is it whoever presents strong arguments that you don't know how to counter? Is it whoever might make other people around you uncomfortable? Is that how we know? What's the test? What's the rubric? What's the measure of whether someone is stirring up division? What is the measure and how can we know? Well, let's consider a little bit more of the context for Titus chapter three. And I quote from verse one, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak no evil of anyone to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Now, bear in mind, stopping in verse 11, bear in mind that a couple of things can be true all at the same time. One, that to talk about difficult passages, to take every thought captive, to demolish strongholds, to teach only what accords with sound doctrine, to teach the disciples made of all nations, to observe all that Christ commanded, will involve disagreement, confrontation, encouragement, instruction, correction, rebuke, in a word, conflict. The one doing the discipling or doing the teaching or doing the preaching or doing the work of an evangelist or even just leading their household, their family, their friends, by example, might be accused of all of these things. And if we're not careful how we define, based on the whole counsel of God, what the precedent is and what else God has commanded his people to say and to do and to be about, if we're not careful, this can be a way of wedging out anybody who merely is trying to be a Berean. The Bereans were praised for being of a more noble sort than the Jews of Thessalonica. Why? Because they searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Again, also go back to Ezekiel chapter 34. God himself is against these shepherds who don't feed the sheep. God himself will feed the sheep. And what is this feeding of the sheep? Well, when we come forward to the resurrected Christ speaking to Peter, asking him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep. And what he means by feed my sheep is teach them to observe all that I've commanded. Teach them my words. Teach them about me. Tell them the truth. Why? What does it mean to be fed? For one, it means 
that you would be equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. And so that's entirely harmonious and in keeping with Titus chapter 3. Every good work. Well, but what if some of those good works people are going to hate you for? Isn't there something in here in Titus chapter 3 about how we used to be hated by men and hate men, and now we're not, and now everybody gets along and everybody loves everybody? Isn't that the ideal, Garrett? Yes, but also, as I was saying about searching the scriptures, studying the whole counsel of God, you don't get around Jesus himself, our perfect example, our Lord and Savior, having been hated, and why? Because he said things like, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He taught as one with authority. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He made the lame to walk again. He gave sight to the blind. He forgave sins. He, in essence, was hated by the teachers of the law because they were jealous, because they were the shepherds being talked about in Ezekiel 34. And so we have to have an interpretation of Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, that encompasses the possibility that sometimes God's servant is not being quarrelsome, but he's being quarreled with because actually it's the one correcting him, rebuking him, who is filled with envy and is being abusive and is twisting the scripture. And again, yes, we should submit to rulers and authorities, be obedient, be ready for every good work, avoid quarreling. That doesn't mean you never have a disagreement, you never have conflict, but avoid quarreling. Absolutely. Be gentle. Yes, absolutely. Show perfect courtesy. So be polite. Don't be rude. Don't be obnoxious. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. Why? Because you also used to be a numbskull. You you also used to be wayward and wicked and selfish and ignorant. So be patient with other people when they are also those things. Be kind, be compassionate. But it's just like when we read, as much as depends on you, seek to live peaceably, strive to live peaceably with all men, seek peace and pursue it. That's all very good. That's biblical. And, not but, and you may do that and the sinful nature in other people will not allow for peace, will not allow for you to be in harmony with them and also honor God and be faithful to his word and be doing every good work. What if you're doing a good work? Let's say, for instance, protecting the unborn. You're a person with authority in the civil government. You're protecting unborn children from brutal murder. And then someone says, ooh, we're going to have a problem. We're going to have a conflict. You stop that. You knock that off. But it's a good work. If they want to argue with you, if they want to quarrel with you, if they want to be contentious about that, have nothing more to do with them. That's more what this is talking about. It's not talking about you and another Christian disagreeing about how to interpret a passage of scripture. They correct you. You don't want to be corrected. You accuse them of being contentious. Otherwise, whoever the first one is to hit that punchline, you're being quarrelsome. You're being divisive. You're being contentious. Can't be cross-examined. Because what will it prove if you do follow up with saying, well, no, I'm not actually being contentious and quarrelsome. Ah, see, you're doing it now. You're still doing it. It's a gotcha. It's a no tag packs. You're it. If in the wrong hands, if in the hands of somebody who is operating from selfish ambition and vain conceit, 
who's making themselves fat as a shepherd when they should be feeding the sheep. Verse 9, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. What does this have to do with talking about things that are not pertinent at all to living a godly life? Quarrels about the law, quibbling about words, right? Paul says that to Timothy. Warn them not to quarrel about words, which can do no good, but only ruins the hearers. And yet, that's balanced against rightly handling the word of truth. And also, being reasonable, letting your reasonableness be evident to all, being open to correction yourself, would see you not quarreling when someone offers a corrective, but asking patiently. Well, how does that square with this other passage? Or how does that drive with what God says in this place? And listen, right? Listen, reason with one another. But it's not the mark of a healthy church or a healthy Christian, if there can be no such discussion, because immediately the reality of a disagreement is enough cause to shut down the discussion. We can only talk if we all agree. Well, in that case, why are we talking? We could save ourselves a lot of energy, a lot of breath. And oh, by the way, what's the protection against error in that case, sin and folly in that case? How does that qualify as feeding the sheep? Be ready for every good work. Well, which are the good works? Which works are good? We're going to have to talk about that. We're going to have to discuss that, especially if some people are saying good works are things that God says are abominable to him, wicked, don't do them. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. We're going to have to talk about whether some of the good works you're telling me to do are in fact good. And oh, by the way, on the flip side, if somebody says those good works you want to do, like say, for instance, getting married, having children, having a home of your own, working, being gainfully employed, providing for yourself. If you want to do those good works and someone is hell-bent on convincing you, convincing everybody around you that you should be prevented from doing those good works, who's the one being divisive? Who's the one being contentious? Who's the one being quarrelsome? If you say, no, listen, it is written. The one making the false claim that that's not actually a good work. If God has said it's a good work, well, then it's a good work. Also, by extension, if somebody is saying, here's a good work, but it's actually a corrupt, wicked thing, you're not the one who's being quarrelsome, contentious, divisive to say, it is written. But at the same time, if you are the one who knows the good you ought to do, and you are trying to do it, and some hate you for it, they resent you for it, they don't understand it, they have a lot of voices in broader society demanding conformity to something very opposite, very contrary to the good work according to God that you have been called to and equipped to do, be patient with them. Do be patient with them. Don't be quarrelsome with them. Have a good testimony. Maybe you win them over by being kind. Be gracious. Be gracious. Be blameless. So in closing here, going back to Joshua 6, I started and I ended with some discussion of when maybe we keep silent or when we speak what we say or what the big idea is and some uncomfortable passages that are challenging passages and some current events items. To recap, we have to be able to discuss what the Word of God says and what it means. And maybe sometimes we just agree to disagree, but we have to be able to discuss. And we shouldn't be so quick to agree to disagree that the discipleship thing is not happening the sheep are not being fed, 
We're not being equipped for every good work. We're not doing good works. Joshua does not tell the people of Israel to keep silent, don't utter a word indefinitely, or with regards to certain topics and issues. He says, keep silent. You shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So there's an expectation that there will be a time and a place to shout. And what makes the difference? God's timing, first and foremost. God's purposes, first and foremost. Not Joshua drunk on power, just wanting to see how far he can take this with the Simon Says game with a whole nation, a whole people. No, no, no. That's not the way to read it. And that's not the lesson to glean from it. If that's how some people are applying it, if that's how some people are taking it, I think they would do well to read Ezekiel chapter 34, a prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. We, for our part as well, if we are not shepherds, so to speak, however narrow or broad you would define who is and isn't a shepherd, if we're not shepherds and if we are seeing a lot of examples of wayward shepherds who make themselves fat, serve themselves, abuse the sheep, neglect the sheep, remember that God himself is our good shepherd. Christ is the good shepherd. That conflict that Jesus had with the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law in the gospel accounts, that was a fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 34, but it didn't end there. That's not all. There's more. Take heart. He has overcome the world. Take heart. He is your good shepherd, ultimately. He will sustain you. He will see that you inherit the promise if you're in him. Don't grow weary in doing what is good. Don't lose heart. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run, as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.